Welcome to the Apostles Houston podcast, and thanks for listening. As a community following Jesus in Houston, we want to be with Jesus, become like Jesus, and do the kinds of things Jesus did. Wherever you are on your spiritual journey, we invite you to join us for worship each Sunday at 10 a.m. in Houston Heights. For more information, visit us online at ApostlesHouston.org. Well, good morning and peace be with you. My name is Eric Mingo, and I am one of the pastors here at Apostles Houston. And if you're new here this morning, a special welcome to you. Uh, I hope you'll stick around afterwards so that we can uh, meet you personally. Uh, Also, if you're new to Anglicanism and you keep hearing people talk about this word, Advent, and you're wondering what that means, you're in good company. A lot of us here are new to Anglicanism and to Advent. But in a nutshell, Advent is the time of the Christian year that we reflect on Christ's first coming in preparation for his second. And we do that by going back to the Old Testament, to the prophets, and even to John the Baptist, like today, to learn how to wait faithfully for his second coming, just as they did the first time around. And we do that all with the hope that when he does return, we will be ready to enter into his kingdom. And as Ken and Craig said just two weeks ago, into his joy. And so by reflecting on our lessons today, that is also our hope. And therefore, to that end, I'm going to open us in another word of prayer before we dive in. Heavenly Father, thank you for calling us into worship this morning, and thank you for your word. Would you now open our hearts and minds to understand your word, that in awaiting your return, we may not grow weary, but rather find our, strength, find our faith strengthened and our strength renewed. We ask this in the name of Christ. Amen. Okay, so if you have your Bibles this morning, I want to go ahead and encourage you to open to Isaiah chapter 40, uh, to the same Isaiah 40 that we heard read just a moment ago. We're going to be in all four of our lessons this morning, but Isaiah is where we're going to spend most of our time, and it's where we're going to begin. Uh, but before we do, I want to just, I want to recount for you a, a brief story that I came across in preparation for this morning that I believe really captures the essence of Advent. There was a moment of eerie silence and a low rumble before the ground began to shake. Buildings swayed and buckled, and then collapsed like houses of cards. In less than four minutes, thousands of people had died in the wake of a magnitude 8.2 earthquake that rocked and nearly flattened Armenia in 1989. The results were devastating. But somewhere in the muddled chaos, a distressed father bolted through the winding streets leading to the school where his son had gone earlier that morning. He couldn't stop thinking about the promise he'd given his son so many times. No matter what happens, Armand, I'll always be there. He reached the site, <clears throat> he reached the site where the school had been, but saw only a pile of rubble. At first, he just stood there fighting back tears, but then he took off towards the east corner where he knew his son's classroom had been. With nothing but his bare hands, he began to dig, desperately pulling up bricks and pieces of wall plaster while everybody else stood by watching in forlorn disbelief. A few pitched in to help, but soon gave up once their muscles began to ache. But this father couldn't stop thinking about his son and the promise that he'd made. And so for hours and hours, he dug and he dug. 12 hours, 18 hours, 24 hours. For 36 hours straight, he searched for his son, 
but to no avail. But then in the 38th hour, he heard a muffled groan from under a piece of wallboard. And he seized the board and he pulled it back and he cried, Armand! And from the darkness came a slight shaking voice, Papa! And then other weak voices began calling out as the young survivors stirred beneath the still uncleared rubble and the streets erupted in praise. In the end, 14 of the 33 students were found still alive because of this father who kept his promise to his son. And when Armand finally emerged, everybody standing there heard him as he turned to his friends and said, See, I told you my father would not forget us. Catholic theologian Scott Hahn, from whom I first heard this story, says, That's the kind of faith we need, the kind of faith of Armand, because that's the kind of God we have. A God who keeps his promises. And that's what Advent is all about. It's about a God who keeps his promises. Yes, it's about waiting and watching for the return of Christ, but it's a waiting and watching that is grounded in the fact that God always keeps his promises, just like Armand's dad. And so not surprisingly, that's exactly how Mark opens his gospel that we heard read just a moment ago with an announcement that in sending John the Baptist to prepare the way for Christ, God was finally making good on all of his promises. From the promises made to David, to those made through Moses, and even the promise made to Abraham, that through his seed all nations would be blessed, God was keeping his promises. And although we don't have time to go through all of them this morning, what I want to do is look at the ones he made through the prophet Isaiah, that we heard read just a moment ago. So if you found your place, let's go ahead and read again from verses 1 through 5. Comfort, comfort my people, says your God. Speak tenderly to Jerusalem and cry to her. Her warfare is ended. Her iniquity is pardoned. She has received from the Lord's hand double for all her sins. A voice cries, in the wilderness prepare the way of the Lord. Make straight in the desert a highway for our God. Every valley shall be lifted up. Every mountain and hill be made low. The uneven ground shall become level. And the rough, plain, and the rough place is a plain. And the glory of the Lord shall be revealed. And all flesh shall see it together. For the mouth of the Lord has spoken. So what's going on here? What promises are being declared by God to his people that would eventually be fulfilled in Christ? The first one is this, that Israel's exile and punishment were going to come to an end. Look again at verses 1 and 2. Why was Israel in need of comfort? It's because when this word came through the prophet Isaiah, they were no longer living in Jerusalem. They were no longer living in the promised land. They were in exile, living as slaves in Babylon. You see, the entire first half of the book of Isaiah was basically an extended prophetic warning that if Israel didn't repent of her rebellion and her idolatry, that God was going to withdraw his presence and allow her to be taken captive by two of the world's great superpowers of that day, Assyria and then later Babylon. And when she didn't listen, the prophetic word came true. 
Around the year 597 BC, the temple was destroyed, thousands were killed, and the remaining inhabitants of Jerusalem were taken captives as slaves in a foreign land. The devastation was totalizing. Like Armand and his friends, Israel was living and suffocating under the rubble of an earthquake. The only difference was this was an earthquake of her own making. And so when Isaiah says, comfort, comfort my people, he was breaking a decades-long silence with Israel, saying that her exile was coming to an end, that her sins had been pardoned, and that it was time for her to go home. First promise is that exile was coming to an end. The second promise was that God himself was going to return to Jerusalem as well, and that everyone, everyone would be able to see his glory. You see, when Isaiah prophesied that if God's people didn't repent, that he was going to allow her enemies to come in and take them captive, it was going to be by withdrawing his glory that that would even be possible. Now, the glory of the Lord can be an ambiguous term, but in its simplicity, the glory of God is the essence of who he is. It's the visible expression of all that he is, all of his wisdom, all of his power, and all of his might. When you, when you think about the glory of the Lord, you might think of the Chronicles of Narnia whenever Mrs. Beaver and Lucy are talking. And Lucy says to Mrs. Beaver about Aslan, is he safe? What's she say? Oh, heavens, no, he's not safe. He's, he's a lion. But he's good. He's good. The glory of the Lord is good, but it is not safe. In fact, it was the glory of the Lord that kept Israel safe from everyone who was not good. And so just like Isaiah prophesied, when God's people did not repent, the glory of God did a vertical takeoff and left the temple and never came back, leaving his people vulnerable to their enemies. But here in Isaiah 40, God is promising to reverse that judgment, to restore his glory to the temple in such a way that all flesh, meaning all nations, especially their enemies, would be able to see. So exile is coming to an end, and the king is going to return in all of his glory. Finally, the third promise is that God promised that nothing would stop these promises from coming to pass. Even if Israel defaulted on her promises to God, God would not default on his promises to her. His word, Isaiah says, will stand forever. Let's actually look at this section again, starting in verse 6. Isaiah says, a voice cries, a voice says, cry. And I said, what shall I cry? All flesh is grass, and all its beauty is like the flower of the field. The grass withers, the flower fades when the breath of the Lord blows on it, and surely the people are grass. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. Okay, some of that maybe sounds a bit confusing, but it's important to remember that Isaiah is not writing in prose here. He's writing poetry, which is also the case with most of the prophets. But the essence of what he is saying is this. Men's words are provisional, but God's word endures. Meaning that even if God's people make a big show about repenting and coming back to God, to worship and obey him and him alone, 
even if they make a big show of that, but then default on their promises and do none of those things, God will still do what he promised to do. He will still bring them home. He will still display his glory in all the earth because God keeps his promises and his word stands forever. So there are three promises that God is making through the prophet Isaiah to the people of God. The end of exile, the return of the king and his glory, and finally, an assurance that he would keep his promise. Are you with me? Okay, this is where it gets interesting, if it hasn't already. You see, by the time John the Baptist comes on the stage in Mark chapter 1, God has begun to keep some of these promises. In fact, after what seemed like an eternity in captivity, God moved unexpectedly through a man later known as Cyrus the Great to set free the captive ones from Zion, to return home to the city of Jerusalem, and even to rebuild the temple. And that's exactly what they did. There was just one problem, one really big God-sized problem. Though they had returned home to the promised land, God had not come with them. The temple was rebuilt, but the glory of the Lord had not filled it. And you know what that means. It means that they were vulnerable once again to their enemies. And sure enough, no sooner did they gain freedom from slavery in Babylon, they were slaves, of, slaves again to an even bigger tyrant, Rome. So what happened? What happened to God's word stands forever? Had God lied? Had God forgotten about the promises he made? Or worse, had he not the power to finish what he began? It's not hard to imagine the kinds of questions many of the faithful must have been feeling during this time, especially before John the Baptist came on the scene. In fact, if you read on in chapter 40, these are exactly the kinds of questions they were asking Isaiah right after he delivered these promises we've been reflecting on. As Solomon says, hope deferred makes a heart sick, but a longing fulfilled is a tree of life. How was God going to make things right? How was he going to keep his promises? Enter John the Baptist, and we're back in chapter one of Mark. To be honest, I'm not sure that he is what they were expecting or looking for. Uh, some weird-looking guy eating bugs and honey, hanging on the outskirts of town, telling everyone that God's coming back any day, and they better get right before he, get right with him right before he does. I've seen that documentary on Netflix. <laughs> it doesn't end in salvation for the world. But what I do know is that when he began to quote Isaiah, Matthew, Mark, and Luke say that everyone began to listen. Could this be the time? Is God about to return? Will he at long last deliver us from evil? I like to imagine that when John came on the scene quoting these ancient promises fulfilled, it was like Armand hearing his father's voice calling his name up from above the rubble. Prepare the way. Prepare the way for hope to be born anew. And whether or not 
that is what it was like or not. What I do know for sure is that when he began directing them to start following Jesus, that's exactly what began to happen. Hope began to spring forth eternal once again. As Jesus began to make good on all of the outstanding promises of God. By seeking out the lost, healing the sick, feeding the hungry, and even judging the religious hypocrites, Jesus kept God's promise made through Ezekiel that we talked about two weeks ago to be our good shepherd. By forgiving sins on his own authority, Jesus kept God's promise to Malachi to return to the temple and to accept the sacrifices made for forgiveness once again, but this time the temple was his own body. By sending the Spirit, Jesus establishes a new covenant, giving us new hearts with God's law written on them, keeping the promises made through Jeremiah and Ezekiel. But most importantly, by giving his life for the sins of the world, though he himself was sinless, Jesus kept God's promise made through Isaiah to reveal his glory to all flesh. Remember, the glory of God is the essence of who he is. It's his very presence in person made visible for all the world to see. It's all of his power and all of his mercy and all of his wisdom revealed over and over throughout the journey of God's people from Egypt to the promised land, from exile and back again, and now to the cross. You see, the cross isn't where anyone expected to see God's glory revealed. In fact, the cross was intended to be the place where someone's glory was snuffed out. But in this case, in the case of Christ, it was the place where all the fullness of glory could be seen by all flesh. It was the place where every tribe, tongue, and nation could finally see the full extent of the self-giving love of Israel's God and finally believe that he is not only the God of the Jews, but that he is their God as well. That he alone loves them enough to die for them, that he alone has the power to save them and to raise them up again, and that he alone is worthy of all glory, honor, and praise forever and ever. Amen. On the cross, the glory of God is revealed, the full extent of his love for all the nations, no longer but no longer as merely a means of keeping his people safe from their enemies, but the means by which God rescues, redeems, and blesses them, fulfilling every last one of his promises from David all the way back to Abraham to bless all the nations. And that's why the Apostle Paul says, in Christ all the promises of God find their yes, meaning that in him alone, are all of God's promises kept. And that is what Advent is all about. So where does that leave us? If in Christ God keeps all of his promises, how should we respond? How should we go about waiting and watching for him to do it again? For him to come and to fill the earth with his glory so that we can all see it again. Briefly, <clears throat> Our lessons today give us three instructions. The first is to pray. Isaiah 40 is evidence that when we pray, as the psalmist did in Psalm 85, God hears our prayers and is moved with compassion to come to our aid. 
The important thing is that we learn from the psalmist that our prayers should not merely be for a return to the glory days of old, but for the glory days of what is to come when Christ returns. In other words, our prayers and our lives should both be oriented towards seeing his kingdom come on earth as in heaven. Prayers no smaller than that will be acceptable. The second is repentance. As John the Baptist reminds us, it's only by turning from our sins and bearing fruit in keeping with repentance that we can rightly hope to enter God's kingdom when he comes. Therefore, let us not presume upon our baptism today, only to find that when he comes on that day, he doesn't recognize us. Let us, bear fruit, let us repent and bear fruit in keeping with that repentance. And finally, the Apostle Peter says to take care to grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. In other words, let us be diligent to study his word and to hide it in our hearts so that whether he comes tomorrow or not for another 2,000 years, we will not forget that his word endures forever and that he will come again because he has promised to do so. Let us pray, let us repent, and let us hide his word in our hearts. What will happen if we do? The prophet Isaiah says that we will renew our strength. We will mount up with wings like eagles. We will run and not grow weary. We will walk and we will not faint. And not only that, says Peter, we will hasten the day of his glorious return. Amen? Let's pray. Almighty God, we thank you. We thank you that your word stands forever and that just as you kept your promises in Christ, you will keep them again when he returns. We ask, Lord, that by your grace, you would teach us to pray, teach us to repent, and teach us to grow in Christ, that as we do with patience and faithfulness, we may bear fruit to your glory, our joy, and the life of the world. We ask this in the name of Christ our Lord. Amen. Thanks again for listening. We hope this resource has been helpful to you. If you have questions or are just looking for more information, you can check out our website at apostleshouston.org.